Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Stephen Dell. And I'm Rob Weinstock. And we're the co-chief medical editors of Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. Hey listeners, it's the week after Thanksgiving and I'm still trying to digest all that food I consumed over the holiday weekend. No doubt we're all feeling a little more stuffed than usual and a little extra grateful for our good fortunes in life. And topping that list is no doubt our family and friends. If this crazy year of COVID has taught us anything, it's that staying connected is crucial to our health, well-being, and happiness. Well, in this episode, we explore another variation of staying connected, and that is staying connected to your colleagues, including those in other ophthalmic specialties. Let's listen in as three of your colleagues help navigate glaucoma and retina surgery for the cataract surgeon. These experts help shed some light on proven strategies to further boost your confidence in the OR. First up is Lori Perventure, a glaucoma specialist at Cincinnati Eye Institute in Ohio, who shares with us some of the major upgrades to glaucoma care seen in recent years and provides a blueprint for best practices in referring to glaucoma specialists. Glaucoma care has undergone tremendous changes during the past decade. In addition to the introduction of MIGS, several new topical therapeutics, and sustained-release drug delivery, robust data were reported that support selective laser trabeculoplasty as a primary treatment for primary open-angle glaucoma and ocular hypertension, and high-quality research was published that supports early lens extraction for the treatment of angle closure disease. Expanded options allow glaucoma specialists to intervene sooner in the disease course, which can improve patients' quality of life, slow disease progression, and delay or avoid the need for more invasive surgery. When a system undergoes a major upgrade, end users must relearn how to interface with the changes. As glaucoma care evolves, the timing and pattern for referrals must adapt as well. When a drug regimen becomes more complex, patient adherence declines, the risk of side effects such as ocular surface disease increases, and costs rise. Multiple studies have shown that patient adherence to prescribed glaucoma medical therapy is often poor. In the Glaucoma Adherence and Persistence Study, only 10% of patients persisted with therapy over the course of a year. In another study, less than 33% of patients could instill eye drops correctly. The concept of maximum tolerated medical therapy should be recast as maximum reasonable medical therapy. An earlier referral of patients to a glaucoma specialist can break down medication-related barriers and transition at least some of the burden of treatment from the patient to the provider through the first-line use of selective laser trabeculoplasty, the implantation of a sustained delivery device, or surgery, for example. Topical therapy may be the best approach to treatment in some patients, but it may be possible to decrease the number of medications they require. All patients deserve to know their options. A combined procedure should be considered for patients who have glaucoma and a visually significant cataract. If the patient is a glaucoma suspect, glaucoma screening and disease staging before cataract surgery are warranted. MIGS procedures have been found to be safe and effective for certain forms of glaucoma. But devices such as the eye stent trabecular microbypass stent from Glaucos and the hydrus microstent from Ivantis are approved for use only in conjunction with cataract surgery, and a pseudophagic glaucoma patient has missed this opportunity. Standalone options are available, but the risk associated with additional surgery can be avoided with a combined procedure. 
Multiple studies have shown that cataract surgery alone lowers IOP. However, MIGS combined with cataract surgery can decrease IOP and the number of glaucoma medications compared with cataract extraction alone. The Horizon study found that cataract surgery combined with hydrous microstent implantation decreased the number of patients who required subsequent incisional glaucoma surgery or cyclodestruction. Even patients with glaucoma that seems to be well-controlled with medications may develop tachyphylaxis, medicamentosa, or an allergy, or these patients may prove to be rapid progressors. The effectiveness in angle closure glaucoma of lens extraction, or EGLE trial, provided strong evidence that clear lens extraction has greater IOP-lowering efficacy and is more cost-effective than laser peripheral iridotomy combined with topical medical therapy in patients who have primary angle closure and high IOP or primary angle closure glaucoma, or PACG. The EGLE trial excluded patients younger than 50 years of age to minimize the effect of loss of accommodation with clear lens extraction. Patients with a visually significant cataract were also excluded because they can logically proceed straight to cataract extraction, bypassing laser peripheral iridotomy. Patients with primary angle closure glaucoma, or primary angle closure, who have extensive peripheral anterior synechiae, at least four clock hours, merit a referral to a glaucoma specialist for consideration of clear lens extraction or cataract extraction combined with goniosynechiolysis. This releases the synechiae combined with goniosynechiolysis to release the synechiae and potentially improve aqueous outflow. Goniosynechiolysis should be performed by a glaucoma surgeon who has experience operating under indirect gonioscopy and in the confines of the iridocorneal angle, because errors could result in serious complications such as hyphema, iridodialysis, or cyclodialysis. Cataract extraction or clear lens extraction and goniosynechiolysis can also be combined with MIGS to improve IOP control in patients who have PACG. Many of the traditional reasons for a glaucoma referral remain unchanged. Rapid disease progression, severe stage at diagnosis, and uncontrolled or acutely elevated IOP. The sentiment, however, that all non-surgical options must be exhausted before a referral has fortunately become outdated. Technological advances and high-quality research encourage earlier intervention for glaucoma. As a means of enhancing patients' quality of life, reducing costs, and decreasing the burden of lifelong compliance, shifting the onus of treatment from the patient to the provider. Turning our attention to the posterior segment, Avni P. Finn, a vitreal retinal surgeon at Northern California Retina Vitreous Associates, details the best strategies for managing patients after complicated cataract surgery and outlines when to refer and when to co-manage. The evolution of cataract surgical techniques has increased the procedure's efficiency and improved outcomes, but intra- and post-operative complications can affect the vitreous and retina. Most of these conditions may be successfully co-managed by the cataract surgeon in conjunction with the retina surgeon. The best outcomes are achieved when the cataract surgeon can assess the patient's pre- and intraoperative risk factors for retinal complications and when prompt diagnosis and management with a retina specialist are initiated. Cystoid macular edema, 
or CME, is the most common cause of vision loss after cataract surgery. Historically referred to as Irvine gas syndrome, pseudophagic CME was described by Irvine in 1953, and the fluorescein findings were later detailed by gas. The reported incidence of CME varies from 0.1% to 11% of eyes after uneventful cataract surgery. Postoperatively, inflammatory mediators are upregulated in both the aqueous and the vitreous, leading to a breakdown of the blood retinal barrier and an increase in vascular permeability. Risk factors for CME include vitreous loss, retained lens fragments, anterior vitrectomy, iris trauma, posterior capsular rupture, eye well dislocation, implantation of an anterior chamber or iris fixated IOL, presence of an epiretinal membrane, and a history of diabetic macular edema, uveitis, retinal vein occlusion, or retinal detachment repair. In order to reduce the risk of postoperative CME, all pre-existing retinal conditions should be controlled before cataract surgery. Eyes with diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema should be evaluated and treated as appropriate. Often an anti-VEGF agent will be injected one to two weeks prior to cataract surgery. Adequate control of intraocular inflammation for at least three months before the cataract procedure is recommended for patients with uveitis. CME typically occurs between 4 and 12 weeks after surgery, with a peak incidence at 4 to 6 weeks postoperatively. Topical NSAIDs may be administered postoperatively as prophylaxis in patients undergoing cataract surgery who are at high risk of developing CME. When diagnosed after cataract surgery in a patient whose procedure was otherwise uncomplicated, treatment for CME typically consists of topical corticosteroid and NSAID eye drops, and this treatment may be initiated by the cataract surgeon. Data suggests that these medications work synergistically and that outcomes are superior with combination therapy compared with monotherapy. If the cataract procedure was complicated or there was a pre-existing risk factor, the cataract surgeon may wish to consider initiating treatment for CME and making a prompt referral to a retina specialist. If the CME persists despite topical treatment, a referral to a retina specialist is warranted. At this point, periocular or intravitreal corticosteroids and anti-VEGF treatment are recommended. An early referral and co-management with a retina specialist should be considered if the etiology of CME is related to a complicated cataract surgery and there's evidence of abnormal vitreous adhesions, vitreous incarceration at the incision, retained lens material, vitreomacular traction, or an epiretinal membrane. Retained lens fragments complicate 0.18% to 1.1% of cataract surgery. Both the timings of medical and surgical treatment and the collaborative involvement of an anterior segment surgeon and a vitreoretinal surgeon are critical in managing this condition. Complications related to retained lens fragments include elevated IOP, intraocular inflammation, corneal edema, CME, and retinal detachment. A major factor in avoiding retained lens fragments is preoperatively identifying potential risk factors such as a history of trauma, zonular dehiscence, pseudoexfoliation, high myopia, prior eye surgery, a history of retinopathy of prematurity, 
a brunescent cataract, tamsulosin use, prior vitrectomy, and multiple prior intravitreal injections. Intraoperatively, posterior capsular rupture should be identified promptly, and if vitreous prolapse occurs, an anterior vitrectomy should be performed. Anterior segment surgeons should not attempt to remove material from the vitreous cavity. Suturing all incisions and minimizing corneal edema for potential future surgery are important steps. IOL insertion is advisable if there is adequate capsular support without vitreous prolapse in the anterior chamber. Each case must be assessed individually. The severity of inflammation, the amount and type nuclear versus cortical of retained lens material, and IOP may influence the management strategy. The cataract surgeon may initiate medical management with topical drops to control inflammation and IOP. Small cortical fragments may dissolve with topical steroids supplemented on occasion with dilating and IOP-reducing eye drops. Pars plane of vitrectomy is indicated to remove nuclear and large cortical pieces. Persistent IOP elevation also necessitates more urgent surgical intervention. In these situations, most retina specialists recommend a vitrectomy within two to three weeks to improve outcomes and reduce the risk associated with elevated IOP. It may be necessary, however, to delay surgical intervention if there is insufficient media clarity, such as the presence of significant corneal edema that must be treated to permit a safe vitrectomy. Patients who have retained lens fragments after cataract surgery should be monitored for the development of delayed vision loss from complications such as CME or retinal detachment. Most IOLs are placed securely in the capsular bag. On occasion, however, an IOL can become dislocated and require secondary intervention. The incidence of IOL dislocation after cataract surgery ranges from 0.3 to 1%. Late spontaneous IOL dislocation occurs because of zonular weakness or dehiscence. Risk factors include trauma, prior vitreoretinal surgery, pseudoexfoliation syndrome, connective tissue disorders, uveitis, axial myopia, and retinitis pigmentosa. The anterior segment surgeon may choose to manage a partially subluxated or decentered IOL alone if it has not prolapsed into the vitreous cavity, vitreous prolapse has not occurred, and there is no concurrent retinal pathology. There are many techniques for refixating or recentering an IOL via limbal surgical approach. Depending on the remaining capsular support and ocular factors, the surgeon may choose to open the capsular bag or sulcus with an OVD and then reposition or refixate the IOL to the iris or sclera or remove and replace the IOL. A referral to a retina specialist is necessary when an IOL has completely dislocated posteriorly into the vitreous or onto the retinal surface. A pars plane of vitrectomy is safer for removing or repositioning the IOL. These cases can be managed either by a retina surgeon alone as simultaneous procedures or both by a surgeon and anterior segment surgeon as sequential procedures. For the collaborative approach, the retina specialist performs the vitrectomy and brings the lens into the anterior chamber. The anterior segment surgeon can then either remove the lens or perform iris or scleral fixation. If the lens is removed, 
the cataract surgeon can implant a replacement IOL in the anterior chamber or use scleral fixation. Retinal detachment is an infrequent but sight-threatening complication of cataract surgery. Vitreous changes occurring after cataract surgery may lead to posterior vitreous detachment, which increases the risk of a retinal tear or detachment. The presence of floaters and photopsia and reported visual field or acuity changes can indicate a retinal detachment. A dilated examination of the retina is mandatory and includes an evaluation for tobacco dust or pigmented cells in the anterior vitreous, i.e. Schaefer sign, a Weiss ring signifying vitreous separation from the optic nerve, and the peripheral retina for tears or detachment. If a retinal tear or detachment is noted or symptoms are unremitting, an immediate referral to a retina specialist is indicated. Postoperative endophthalmitis can cause severe and potentially irreversible vision loss. This complication occurs after 0.04 to 0.2% of cataract surgeries. An examination may reveal conjunctival injection, corneal edema, intraocular inflammation with vitreous and anterior cells or debris, hypopion or fibrin. In severe cases, the red reflex may be blunted and the view of the posterior segment may be limited. Risk factors for endophthalmitis include prolonged surgery, posterior capsular rupture, vitreous loss, placement of a secondary IOL, wound leak or hypotony, vitreous incarceration, and combined surgery, for example, glaucoma and cataract surgeries at the same time. In addition to early diagnosis, the cataract surgeon plays an important role in the prevention of postoperative endophthalmitis. Several steps can be taken to reduce the risk. The most effective method of preoperative antisepsis is the application of 5% povidone iodine solution to the corneal surface, conjunctival sac, and periocular surface. A three-minute exposure time before the initiation of cataract surgery is effective. Topical and intracameral antibiotics are also widely used for prophylaxis. In a prospective randomized study by the ESCRS, the risk of postoperative endophthalmitis was nearly five times higher in patients who did not receive intracameral antibiotics compared to those who did receive intravitreal cefuroxime at the end of cataract surgery. Intravitreal vancomycin prophylaxis in sequential cataract surgery is not recommended, however, because of the risk of hemorrhagic occlusive retinal vasculitis. A patient with suspected endophthalmitis should be immediately referred to a retina specialist for evaluation and treatment. Most complications occurring after cataract surgery may be effectively co-managed by the anterior segment surgeon and the retina surgeon. Teamwork is the cornerstone of caring for a patient who experiences vitreoretinal complications after cataract surgery. Expediting referral in complicated cases after appropriate initial diagnostic and therapeutic steps have been taken is essential for achieving the best outcomes. To wrap up this episode, let's listen as Christina Y. Wang, an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Fellowship Surgery Program Director of Vitreoretinal Diseases and Surgery at Baylor College of Medicine, identifies several ways to maximize outcomes for retina patients and focuses on posterior chamber IOL selection. 
Thanks to continued advances in operating equipment, surgical technique, and IOL technology, cataract surgery is safer and more effective than ever. Although most patients will be relatively straightforward surgical candidates, those with pre-existing retinal diseases, such as age-related macular degeneration, retinal detachment, and diabetic macular edema may require certain modifications in surgical planning. This article reviews the factors to consider when managing these patients with a special focus on posterior chamber IOL selection. Because patient expectations for cataract and refractive surgery are extremely high, it is crucial for those with retinal conditions to understand that their surgical outcomes may not match the outcomes of others, including their family or friends who might have shared with them their positive experiences. It is advisable to assess patient's visual potential first, then image the retina with OCT to confirm that no recent changes have occurred. If you have doubts about the current retinal status, refer patients back to their retina specialist. In our experience, it is especially helpful for patients to hear about their guarded visual prognosis twice, first from the retina specialist and then again from the anterior segment specialist. The same principles of IOL measurement used for routine cataract surgery patients apply to those with retinal conditions. Among them are the following. Assess the ocular surface for signs of dry eye disease and epithelial basement membrane dystrophy to ensure accurate calculations. Consider performing corneal topography, especially in patients with excellent visual potential who may benefit from a toric IOL. Use cataract grade to guide the type of biometry used. Obtain calculations for a variety of IOLs in case of an unexpected event. Perform preoperative evaluation for phacodenesis in every cataract surgery patient, but especially in those with a history of parsplane of vitrectomy because they are more often affected by zonular dehiscence and posterior capsular compromise. And be sure to note a history of refractive surgery so that appropriate IOL formulas are used. This detail can easily get buried in a complicated ocular history. The refractive target is a decision shared with the patient. For patients with macular degeneration, it may be advantageous to aim for distance vision so that the plus spectacles used for reading boost magnification. For patients who have high myopia, especially those who are young and may not have the contralateral cataract extracted for many years, it is important to consider the potential for significant postoperative anisometropia. Unless they are willing to wear a contact lens or to have the contralateral cataract removed soon, consider aiming for a myopic target that will balance the visual acuity of the fellow eye. Hydrophobic acrylic monofocal IOLs are generally the safest bet in retina patients. Toric IOLs are an excellent option for patients with regular astigmatism, and several companies manufacture them on hydrophobic acrylic platforms. Certain IOLs should be avoided in this population. Patients with significant maculopathy may not tolerate presbyopia correcting IOLs because of a possible degradation in contrast vision and a 12 to 18% loss of light from diffractive optics. This loss of light can negatively affect visual function, especially in low luminance settings. Moreover, performing retinal surgery, particularly fine macular work through presbyopia correcting IOLs can be challenging. This is an important consideration because these patients may require future retina surgery procedures. Silicone IOLs should also be avoided because silicone oil adheres to and opacifies these lenses. Even if silicone oil is not presently in the eye, silicone oil tamponade may be required in the future. Hydrophilic acrylic IOLs should be avoided for similar reasons. 
They are prone to calcification if gas tamponade is ever performed, although this phenomenon has also been reported in hydrophobic IOLs. As a retina surgeon, I do not notice a significant difference between one and three-piece IOLs in the capsule, but I prefer an optic diameter of, of at least six millimeters for visualization purposes. Of course, if an IOL is placed in the sulcus because of a ruptured posterior capsule, it must be a three-piece design to avoid sequelae such as uveitis glaucoma hyphema syndrome. If the posterior capsule is violated, but the anterior capsularexis is intact, sulcus fixation of the IOL with optic capture is a good option. In this situation, an adjustment of IOL power is not necessary, whereas the power should be decreased if the entire IOL is placed in the sulcus www.dr-hill.com is a useful reference in this situation. When capsular support is inadequate, scleral fixated IOLs are a popular alternative. The only IOL approved for scleral fixation is the CZ70BD from Elcon, but its placement necessitates a large incision because of the 7mm optic and non-foldable PMMA composition. If the Yamani technique is used, the CT Lucia 602 from Carl Zeiss Meditech is a good choice because of its strong and flexible polyvanillidine fluoride haptics. Remember that leaving the patient aphakic and returning later for secondary IOL placement is always a valid option, especially when unexpected complications occur. Likewise, taking proper steps intraoperatively and postoperatively is helpful to ensure good postoperative results. The pupils of patients with a history of retinal surgery may not dilate well, so an expansion device may be required. A small capsularexis can minimize anterior optic prolapse if gas placement becomes necessary in the future. When performing phacoemulsification, avoid excessive tension on the zonules, which may be weakened from previous pars plane of vitrectomy or intravitreal injections. Have a capsular tension ring and capsular tension segments on hand in case they are needed. Remove peripheral lens epithelial cells as thoroughly as possible to minimize subsequent secondary opacification. Ensuring that patients follow up with their retina specialist postoperatively is important for several reasons. First, these patients are prone to developing a posterior vitreous detachment after cataract surgery. Second, patients with certain pathologies, such as lattice degeneration, require close monitoring. Third, some patients may be due for their regular intravitreal injections and others require a thorough retinal examination now that the posterior segment is visible again. Cataract surgery dramatically improves visual function in many patients, even those with serious retinal conditions. With appropriate preoperative planning, careful surgery technique, and proper IOL selection, you can maximize outcomes for retinal patients. From the surgeons who graciously take the time to read their articles, to the editorial and digital staff who produce this podcast, we all thank you for spending some time with us on CRST The Podcast. Catch you next episode.